Neither shells nor gloom of war stays group from aiding Sarajevo. And to our astonishment, we started to recognize who this group was. It was a collection of volunteers from among the Serbs, the Croats, the Muslims, to bring packages and letters from warring camps outside of besieged Sarajevo into Sarajevo to a warehouse and there the packages and the letters were sorted. There was a list that had been carefully uh, obtained and compiled where the people were notified that they could come and pick up their correspondence. If the people were too old or too infirm to come, then the volunteers would get into cars and drive over very difficult, dangerous roads into the various parts of Sarajevo where there was a lot of shelling and deliver the packages. There was over 350,000 parcels that were delivered, over 500,000 letters. Who were these people? What was this group? Well, it turns out that Pastor Suzlik was the organizer. He was the pastor of the Adventist Church in Sarajevo, and he was also the director of ADRA there. And he explained why this group, organized by the Adventists, were the only ones who were able to cross all of the checkpoints and deliver correspondence throughout the city. He said to the reporter from Washington, you see, we are nobody and we're everybody's. A healing of the nations. The last few weeks here at Calamesa, you've been exploring different understandings of mission within the Adventist church. And there have been under, different understandings throughout the history of the church. Many of them are valid. For example, a mission of the very early Adventists was to purify themselves in all ways, physically, spiritually, morally, so that they could enter into heaven. And that has continued in the understanding that we should develop ourselves to the point where we're safe to save and can be invited into the kingdom of God. Another understanding of mission within the Adventist church is one that my grandfather, that's mentioned, I guess, in the bulletin, understood for sure, and that is that if Seventh-day Adventists can cross boundaries, national boundaries, into all the nations of the world, then the end can come. Let me suggest another mission, not to take the place of these others, but still one that is overlooked sometimes, and yet one that is central to the mission and the sense of mission of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the healing of the nations. This phrase uh, is found in Ezekiel. The leaves are for the healing. And um, also appears in the revelation of John at the end of the whole of Scripture. Where John, in chapter 22, recreates a scene of Eden that is now at the heart of the holy city. And he says, on either side of the river that flows out of the presence of God is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, 
and leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So John's New Testament hope is the same as Ezekiel's Old Testament hope, a city that is an Eden, a city that is restored so that it becomes a never-ending Sabbath, a place and a time to be in the presence of God. I'd like to look at some of our founders and see how they clearly understood that the healing of the nations was a part of the mission of the church they were founding. Recently, George Knight, who has taught for many years church history at the SDA Theological Seminary, made a rather startling statement. Most of you, at least I realize that from after the first service, have heard of uh, our, one of the founders, Joseph Bates, but George Knight says in an autobiography he was the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I would think that people at the time of Joseph Bates would think that at least James and Ellen White should be included in that, but he was important. He was older than the others. He presided over general conference sessions prior to the church actually being organized as a separate denomination. He was quite a person. At 15, he decided to become a seaman. He was living in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which was a whaling town. It was the setting for the start of the voyage of Moby Dick that Herman Melville wrote about. And there were people, if you look at Melville's book, there were people from all over the world that came uh, to the streets of New Bedford, Massachusetts. So for over 20 years, Joseph Bates was a seaman, eventually he became a captain, and finally he owned his own boat. And this took him to the Baltic and Mediterranean seas, the Atlantic and Pacific oceans. He visited England, Russia, Brazil, and went around Cape Horn and visited Peru. He was imprisoned, he escaped from some prisons, and finally, his father had to write to James Madison uh, so that James Madison would implore the British to release him from Dartmoor Prison. It was quite an adventurous life, but gradually, Bates decided that he wanted to become more involved on land in what he called reformatory movements. He began with himself giving up tobacco in 1823, all forms of alcohol the next year, and then banning alcohol on his own ships <laughs> so that the seamen found out after they'd left port that there was no rum on board. Um, when he gave up being a sea captain, he joined the Christian Connection, which is also the place where James White was an ordained minister, the denomination that, that ordained him. And on land in 1827, he established the Fairhaven Temperance Society. This was a suburb uh, of New Bedford, Massachusetts. That became and spread to being a uh, county temperance society. That temperance society expanded through Massachusetts and became the first national temperance society. He also uh, established the Fairhaven Seamen's Friends Society and was one of the early people establishing a manual improvement I'm sorry, a manual labor school movement. It was quite exotic 
he um, established a school on his property, and the idea that was that the students would be employed planting mulberry trees and starting a silkworm industry. Bates' deepening religious experience, experience strengthened his commitment to the most ambitious of that time's moral reform movements. He established the Fairhaven Anti-Slavery Society. And this founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, if you read his autobiography, found it impossible to separate the expectation of the Lord's return from involvement in reform of society. He says, in connection with these portentous signs in the heavens, moral reform was working its way like leaven throughout the United States. Moral reform societies were multiplied in various phases, as were also peace societies, having for their object the abolition of war. He made it clear that not only did they not collide, but they interacted with one another. Another part of his autobiography, he says, all who embrace this doctrine of the second coming would and must necessarily be advocates of temperance and the abolition of slavery. And those who opposed this doctrine of the second advent would not be very effective laborers in moral reform. Ellen White, whom I still think is one of the founders of the Adventist movement, was just as committed as Joseph Bates to the issue of anti-slavery. Indeed, these Adventists who came from New England identified themselves not with the moderates on anti-slavery, but the most radical group who were opposing slavery, the abolitionists, uh, William, led by William Lloyd Garrison. So, in 1850, when the United States Federal Congress decided that they were going to adopt and did in fact adopt the Fugitive Slave Act, the Adventists opposed it. They opposed the federal statute. Why? The Federal Slave Act said that those slaves who managed to escape their masters from the South and gain freedom in the North, if they were found, were required to be returned to their slave owners in the South. Now this was the thing that gave rise to the Underground Railroad and the Adventists erupted. Ellen White said, very bluntly, the law of our land requiring us to deliver a slave to his master, we are not to obey. Now, many years later, a hundred some years later, Martin Luther King Jr. would not oppose or join his followers to break a federal statute. Local ordinances, yes, but never a federal statute. But Ellen White went even further and said, we've got to break that one. She also discovered that there were some people who called themselves Adventists and supported slavery. So she fired off a message to them. You must yield your views or the truth. Both cannot be cherished in the same heart for they are at war with each other. Unless you undo what you have done, we must let it be known that we have no such ones in our fellowship, that we will not walk with them in church capacity. Either you're an abolitionist or you're not an Adventist. 
They also applied their understanding of the book of Revelation to their own contemporary scene. In the book of Revelation, chapter 13, there is a beast that's called, uh, says that it's, John says that it speaks and talks like a dragon and it has two horns. And the Adventists understood this beast to represent America. And what was the import of that? Well, one horn, they said, represented Republican power. And the other horn represented religious leaders and organizations. And both horns of this animal endorsed slavery. And that's why it spoke and talked like a dragon. In other words, the book that was most precious to them, they understood to be attacking the most controversial, the most sweeping moral question and political question facing the country. Ellen White said, God's anger will not cease and he has caused this land of light to drink the dregs of the cup of his fury until he is rewarded unto Babylon double. Again, drawing uh, their devotion to the book of Revelation into the struggle against slavery. Uriah Smith, whom the whites wanted to and succeeded in appointing as a successor to James White as the editor of the Adventist Review or the Review and Herald as it was then known, wrote a public letter. It was an editorial but it was in the form of an open letter to the sitting president of the United States. I don't think that since then there has ever been an open letter written by the editor of the Review and Herald to any sitting president of the United States. And this was not a friendly letter. Why? Lincoln was not emancipating the slaves through a proclamation. He was saying he was only fighting the Civil War to keep the country together. And this is what Uriah Smith said. He has to stand up against the enthusiasm for freedom which reigns in nearly 20 million of hearts in the free north and against the prayers of four million oppressed and suffering slaves. If he, this is Lincoln, continues to resist all these in refusing to take those steps, which a sound policy, the principles of humanity, and the salvation of the country demand, it must be from an infatuation akin to that which of old brought Pharaoh to an untimely end. Can you imagine any editor of the Adventist Review writing a letter openly to a president of the United States? And in retrospect, it's almost a little grisly because of what happened to Lincoln. After the Civil War, Ellen White stressed the importance of the program which the radical Republicans were proposing for helping the slaves who had been freed to get back on their feet. And her son, Edson, Following her uh, injunctions, got a launch, the Morning Star, and went down the Mississippi River, stopping at the river towns along those banks. She uh, was pleased that there were people being baptized. One of the folks that was baptized was the mother of a person who became a vice president of the General Conference and the president of the, of the North American Division. He carried out a, a full kind of ministry. Not only was there preaching, 
but there were schools that taught the freed slaves how to engage in crop rotation, how to help feed themselves and not just depend upon cotton. When he was done and turned over the work to the leadership of the denomination, there were 1,800 students enrolled in 55 schools across the South, and there were two sanitariums helping the freed slaves uh, in Nashville and Atlanta. Ellen White and her family were committed to the healing of the nations. She also was just as committed to the cause of temperance. Now, I think many times today, we look on temperance as something where we encourage other people to manage their own lives and to improve their lives and overcome uh, the imbibing of liquor. But for Ellen White, the liquor interests were destroying America, and her opposition to the liquor interests was the same as her opposition to slave interests. That was, she wanted this country that she and the other founders of America, uh, I'm sorry, of the Adventist Church loved so much to live up to a higher standard. She said, because of the link, liquor interests, society is corrupted. Workhouses and prisons are crowded with paupers and criminals, and the gallows are supplied with victims. Listen to this. The burden of taxation is increased. The morals of the young are imperiled. The property and even the life of every member of society is endangered. She was attacking what she understood at that time to be the greatest threat to the communal life of America. And she said, Adventists should be in the forefront. She chastised sometimes the leaders for not continuing to be allies of the temperance groups. She herself gave her time and energy to lecture and there were times when she spoke to 5,000 people, and in her own hometown of Portland, Maine, she is said to have addressed 20,000 people on behalf of temperance. She also said that she understood that there were some in the Midwest who were wondering whether they should get involved in politics, and she said, perhaps, I, because by this time, of course, the issue of temperance, like the issue of slavery, had become among other things, a political question. She says, perhaps I shall shock some of you if I say, if it is necessary, vote on the Sabbath day for prohibition. You've probably not heard that in the review or from the pulpit, even here at Calamesa. We have a second generation of leaders that came along, represented by John Harvey Kellogg, the Whites made it possible financially for him to get his medical education at the University of Michigan and also at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. But he not only came back to establish a medical school in Battle Creek that taught regular medicine, uh, which was taught at all of the major universities, but he made sure that those students were also involved in health reform efforts, very broadly understood. In effect, he was making sure that the students were involved as healers in the healing of the nation. He received a request from the Wessel brothers from South Africa. They asked 
him a question that all administrators love to hear. What would you do with $40,000? Now, the Wessels happened to have property, which was the place where the Kimberly Diamond strike took place. And they were offering some of the first earnings from that to John Harvey Kellogg. And he immediately said to them, I would go to Chicago and start a work. They said, the money is yours. That same year, by May 1, he had started to establish what became seven different institutions in Chicago to address the question of immigrant poor coming to the United States in the big cities of America. May 1, he started the Chicago Branch Sanitarium, which was for paying customers. The next month, he started the Chicago Medical Mission. And two years later, he bought a five-story building in downtown Chicago and turned it into the College Settlement Building. I don't have time to tell you the incredibly imaginative number of different programs working with women who were prostitutes, the boot blacks of the city of Chicago. Um, but I will just end by saying they also established a journal called The Lifeboat, which was a place where the mission of Adventism was very broadly understood, so that articles in The Lifeboat uh, included articles on juvenile delinquency, child labor, and prison reform, and it attained an amazing circulation of 200,000 circulation. 200,000 people who subscribe. These students who manned these institutions were able to qualify for several state examining boards and even the London Medical Council. But because their one year of their education was required to be taken in these kinds of activities in Chicago, Dr. Stephen Smith, founder of the American Public Health Association, at one point called the American Medical Missionary College in Battle Creek the most important educational institution in the world. Some of the people who were trained in, by John Harvey Kellogg in Battle Creek and in Chicago took that approach, that full understanding of the healing of the nations all over the world. I'm going to do what I asked in the first uh, service. How many of you not only have heard, but may have actually seen Dr. Harry Miller before he died? Could I see your hands? Yes, there are several of you. Dr. Miller graduated from the American Medical Missionary College and uh, also interned at the Lifeboat Mission in Chicago. He and his wife passed the boards. His wife actually passed at a higher level than he did, Maud. Um, and in the end, he had to defy his mentor because John Harvey Kellogg expected Dr. Miller to become the representative of Adventism in the best universities of this country by becoming a professor of medicine. But Harry Miller had a wider adventure in mind. He and his wife went to China. They took a printing press with them from Chicago. They were Adventists. What else were they going to do? And they went up into the middle of China 
And they started using their printing press to bring out periodicals and, and pamphlets. They thinned the, the ink with castor oil. Uh, they went into the Chinese garb. And um, Dr. Miller ended up uh, establishing many hospitals throughout China and uh, Asia. And many times, the, what he did was to establish one hospital that would have paying customers for the rich, and then he would open another hospital in a poor section of town to serve the poor. Does that sound familiar from even the story today? It's the Harvey Kellogg approach. It was also used in Washington, D.C. It was started here when people went from Loma Linda down into uh, downtown uh, Los Angeles. But that was not the most important adventure of Dr. Miller. When he was on furlough back in the United States, he went to the chief chemist of the Department of Agriculture and said, I want you to test soybeans and tell me what are their, what are the, what's the constitution of soybeans and what are, is their value for food. They worked together over several years and as many of you know, Dr. Miller worked on foods, just as his mentor, John Harvey Kellogg, had done. And Dr. Leclerc, the one who worked with him, said, whatever he did in building hospitals was not the most important thing that Dr. Miller accomplished. It was the fact that he worked to develop soybeans into an inexpensive, tasteful way for people to improve their nutrition. And through that, he saved thousands and thousands of lives. Before he died, UNICEF and the World Health Organization acknowledged the importance of Dr. Miller. There were times, and there have been places, where this sense that one of the missions of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the healing of the nations has faded or even become distorted. And we have to acknowledge that. I would say that for wide parts of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the first half of the 20th century, this began to fade, partly because the editors and the writers who appeared in denominational publications did not want to continue to apply the Book of Revelation to contemporary issues. They said it really applies to some time in the future. And simultaneously with that, they didn't want to criticize the American government. And so that beast of Revelation 13 stopped, stopped seeing, seeming like a, uh, a dangerous animal, but kind of a nice lamb-like animal. Even in the drawings of this beast in Adventist publications. However, in recent times, it's clear, I think, that the Adventist Church is acknowledging increasingly the importance of this mission of the church. I'm proud to be part now of Loma Linda where for years research was done on the effects of tobacco smoking, including the effects of secondhand tobacco smoke, the effects on people who were not smokers. Uh, and that research has been fundamental to what has now just been passed as a law in just uh, this year, which is to give the National Institutes of Health for the very first time in its history, going back to Teddy Roosevelt, the right to control 
tobacco as a dangerous substance. Also, Loma Linda has been carrying on studies that on the benefits of vegetarian diet, and that, I think, is having, again, an impact on the diet of America. But for me, the role of the African-American Adventist is absolutely critical for the resurgence of an understanding of the importance of this mission. Uh, I, after a long bit of study and reflection, did decide to get on a bus with a bunch of strangers and go to Selma, Alabama in response to Martin Luther King's call after the beatings of John Lewis and others on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. On Sabbath, when I got there in Selma, I came unannounced to the Black Adventist Church. As a demonstrator from the North, I was not about to go to the White Adventist Church in Selma. And what I discovered was a very neat uh, building and a very tightly run order of service led by Pastor Jones. And it was, there were activities all day long, Sabbath school, church, missionary volunteer meeting, and he made sure that those all worked like clockwork. He invited me to his home, and I discovered there that Pastor Jones was a full-time employee of the state of Alabama. He was a high school science teacher in addition to pastoring the church. And I discovered that these were rather middle-class people who were better off, had more uh, substantial and sustainable jobs than other people uh, in the black community. And I discovered that he was the first person, the first person to lead a civil rights march among the teachers, uh, the high school teachers or any teachers in the South during this civil rights time. And if you watch television during the time of Martin Luther King's birthday, all the networks will show videos over and over again of that march. And here is what I knew as Pastor Jones leading those marches. And one of the things that's so touching is that every step that Jones makes in his life, he has to use two crutches. And that's how he faced the mobs, or the potential mobs. Pastor Jones had no way in the world to separate his Adventism, his commitment to the second coming, his commitment to the expectation of, a, of an ideal city from being involved in the healing of the nations. Those went together as much as they did for the founders of Adventism. And that has had an impact on Adventism in the second half of the 20th century. And I appeal to you to think about that. There are many valid missions of the Adventist church, but it seems to me it is a betrayal of Adventism if we forget that this is a core mission of the Seventh-day Adventist church. So I want to affirm that the moments when we participate in the Adventist mission of the healing of the nations are the moments when our hopes 
are most made tangible for the coming of the Lord and for the arrival of that city whose builder and maker is God.
bow our heads for the benediction. Glory be to him whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory be to him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen.